0: From, Good morning, from
1: Tupelo, Mississippi.
0: Good morning everyone. My name is Maliki. I'm an alcoholic. I live in Tupelo, Mississippi. I think maybe it's because God has a sense of humor. Or uh maybe as the story unfolds you may figure something else out in it. It's a privilege to be with you, it's a gift. It's a blessing in my life to be given the opportunity to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous today, because for years before I came to you, and even for years after I came to you, I still believed that I was different. And I like to think today, and I remind myself, that alcoholism, for me at least, is the disease of being different, and it's deadly for me. When Annette said that I wasn't well, that could mean many things. (laughs) It's yes, probably because I have a real interesting dose of the pink eye that I've been trying to shake for about eight days and oh, all that good stuff. Dublin, Ireland is my hometown. Uh, born and reared. I notice people say we were raised. to raise cattle.
1: You know,
0: people are reared. And, uh, the second before I came to the United States, because I'm often asked that in 1971, came to the city of New Orleans. And I'm frequently asked, how come you've never lost your accent? And I say very simply, I saw no reason to. There's alcoholism in our home growing up. For years I used that as an excuse, gave me a lot of mileage blame others, today I'm able to say to you, because of the gift of these principles in Alcoholics Anonymous, that my mother and father gave me a very special gift, which is the gift of life, and um, I was part of their life in the way that they chose, and also a lot of it had to do with me, because I frequently hear at meetings that some of us believe that we don't fit, we don't connect, we don't seem to be a part of, and that was me. I always seemed like I wanted to be somebody else. I could be like you. I'd be okay. And that was me. I do know, looking back, that part of my life was definitely that I learned at an early age. And that was about me, not about anybody else. But I learned not to feel and not to trust. And it was like I would not allow anybody in because I thought if I let you in, you might hurt me and I always kept you distanced. And it just seemed I just, that was me, my thing, I was not able to connect with other people. I just wasn't. The times I felt safe were interesting and they were connected with alcohol. Isn't that strange? (laughs) When we were little kids growing up, when we had diarrhea or the runs or the trots, as we used to call them in those days. My mother's solution for the trots was to give us a glass of hot milk with some grated nutmeg and a shot of Irish whiskey or brandy in it. And what that was supposed to do was to bind up our stomachs. You see, and what I remember was that warm feeling coursing through me, and I, I felt safe, and I felt wonderful, and I felt happy, and, and I tried to have the trots as often as I could. <laughs> yeah. And I know it says in our text that. We alcoholics drink for the effect, and I know I listened very carefully to Tom last night, and you're know, grateful to Tom not to put him on the spot, but I need heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's not about longevity, but to me it's about God working in people, and I need these heroes, and I have many heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, I can look at you in a different way today. Before, years ago, I I wanted to be like somebody else because to run away from me. But today, you see, I can sit and I can stand with you. And I can look up to you for one reason, because my God is good. And my God is in and with you. And so my God is with me. And one of the gifts that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me today is before I came to you, I'd studied a lot about my God in the scriptures and theology and all that other stuff I used to be involved with, and I knew a lot about my God, but when I came to you, I met him, and that's for me today that makes the difference, that when I'm with you, I feel safe, because I feel like I am in the presence of my God, that was that presence. It wasn't always that way. I was also an ultra server because I was raised to the Roman Catholic tradition, like many young Irish men and women are. And after those masses and services, when there was some wine left over in the cruets, I thought it couldn't go to waste. And so what I would do is I'd grab it and take a little slug when nobody was looking, I thought. And again, I remember the feeling. That's what I was looking for. And listening to Tom last night, he talked about his journey and how he became alcoholic. And uh, and I can respect that. And I don't know of me. I know what I am today by God's grace with you and, and from you. But I do believe that even back in those days, if I'm describing that the alcoholic is a person who drinks for the effect, I think I was alcoholic in my behavior in those days. Because I would look for booze because of what it did for me. It changed how I felt. It made me feel a part of, and it made me feel warm, and it made me feel safe. So... Here I had the troughs on one side of me and I had serving at the altar on the other side of me I couldn't lose, you know. (laughs) And I don't remember too much more about things growing up, you know, I'm almost envious of those who do, you know. But to me, my, my childhood and I suppose adolescence and much later on it seems sometimes I describe it as like still frames in the movie of life. It's just I remember glimmers. It's just like little flashes, moments. That's all I remember. After I finished high school, (coughs) I went off to college and I went off to the uh, major seminary and I became a Roman Catholic priest in 1971. That's why I ended up in the city of New Orleans. I do remember before I left Ireland that my mother exacted a promise from me and that promise was Son, promise me that you will never drink and bring shame on this family. Mothers can be powerful, (coughs) especially with their sons, I think, or maybe it's because we let them, I don't know. But I remember that promise and I got to the city of New Orleans uh, and the first assignment I had in this church community was on the edge of the French Quarter in the Ninth Ward. It was heaven. hell for the first three months because each time I went out with my newfound friends in that community and they go to the local watering holes in the ninth ward and they're having their JD and coke and you know, Roman seven and Jack's beer in those days and Dixie and Falstaff. You know, all I was doing was having coke and in this next audience I might need to clarify that that's the the liquid with the bubbles in it that's in the can <laughs> And all it did for me was made me burp a lot, you know, and I was looking at them and they seemed to be kind of, what we call today, happy, joyous and free. And I was missing the fun feeling of being a part of because I felt apart from them when I was just with them. And I don't remember exactly when it was, but when I had my first glass of scotch, maybe after about three months of being in New and when I had my first glass of scotch, I found all my answers. And I think we can understand that, those of us who've been there. And I became uh, someone who took off with it. Within six months I was a noon drinker and within a year I was a morning drinker. Within another year it seems my behavior was coming to the attention of the powers that be. Those men in the tall pointy hats and they called me in to give an accounting of myself and here was a city born in Dublin and here in the city of New Orleans and no one mentioned alcoholism when they talked to me but they told me that I was ending up in places that normally I might not expect to be and that I was spending time with people that normally one might not associate with in my profession at least publicly You know, not the kind of people maybe we'd share moments with in church on Sunday mornings. And I'm telling you in a very general way, because that's what it says in our text, that we say in a general way what it used to be like and what happened. And if you've got a vivid imagination, that's your problem. You know, I would just keep it very general, you know, probably to protect the uh, guilty. And um, they told me they were moving me which just the solution to the problem, and those days say, you moved the problem, you know. And I know today that if they could have found a place in Louisiana, farther south or west for me from New Orleans, they'd have found it. But the place they found was a place called La Rose, Louisiana. And I lived there for the next eight years, and what happened to me is those people loved me. They loved the unlovable. I went there with a horrible attitude. And the attitude was I was going to make life so miserable for those people. Don't you love it? Yeah. <laughs> if you know a member of the uh, the clergy or whatever, you know. Supposed to be a quote unquote inspiration and I have this attitude I'm going to make life miserable <laughs> for those with me. And the idea was that I would get back to New Orleans where I belonged, because In a small rural community, it's very difficult to be anonymous. I think you can understand that. Mm -hmm. And I I found out that what they didn't know about me, they seemed to make up, you know. But it seemed I was gaining a lot of attention. Because what I was doing at this stage, you know, within two years, was, um, as I best recollected, drinking about a fifth a day. I was one of those drinking to live and living to drink and... Days were becoming nights, and mornings were becoming evenings, and everything just seemed jumbled, and I don't remember too much of anything. It's still a little scary to me today, my friends, And some people, thank you, some people come up to me today, even, and back in, in Louisiana, and say to me, you know, you married our daughter, and it was the happiest day of our life, and it was wonderful, and I don't remember them, I don't remember their daughter, I don't remember the day. Celebrated hundreds of wed- weddings and christenings, and and funerals and don't even remember being there. I was a blackout drinker. Just constant, constant, constant. And then when I became aware that somebody might become aware of my behavior and of course at this stage I was loathing myself, you know that self-loathing that we have. That feeling I know today I identify it. we don't like the feelings of powerlessness as alcoholics and that powerlessness and all those promises I would make, I'll never do it again. all the stuff, I poured down the commode and I said, i would never do it again. And a half an hour later, I'd be out the door looking for more. And that was me, all the time, all the time. And I literally hated myself, but I couldn't tell you that. My greatest fear was that if I told you who I really was, you might not like me. And so I had to act. And I was a wonderful actor on the outside. And inside, I was dying. I was there from 1973 and the story continued, of which much I don't remember. I was told much afterwards, but much I don't remember. I do remember though, and I was told afterwards the date, October 11th, 1979 came around and my boss then, uh, Bishop Boudreaux is his name, he's Cajun, very gentle person, he's since gone home to God and I'm grateful to him. He was one of the few that hung in there with me. because I think he enabled me to for a long time, but that was his decision. I suppose we do what we do the way we do it. But I remember getting a phone call from him and hearing his kind voice saying, Malachi, I'd like to talk to you like a brother. Come visit with me. That's all he said. I went over to his home that afternoon. He lived in Bayou Blue. Or Blue Bayou, for those of you who like Crystal Gale. Bayou Blue. When I walked in the door of his home to visit with him, there were 11 other people there. And something told me that all was not well. (laughs) It just didn't seem like a little social visit we were going to have. And I noticed they were all standing around the wall of his living room. None of them would come near me. And they told me afterwards it was because they were scared of me because I was a vicious drunk. That's how I was. Not violent, but vicious what I would do when I was listening to Kathy at breakfast this morning, what I would do is I would find your weak spot and I'd go for you and shred you before you even got near me. That's how I defended myself. So they stayed far away from me. And <clears throat> the good old bishop said to me, would you like something to drink? And Something told me it would not have been good timing to suggest what I really wanted. So I uh, settled for some coffee. And he fixed it for me, he sat with me, looked me in my eye and said, Malachi, I love you, you drink too much. And I said, I do, for the first time, I admitted to another human being that I drank too much. No one mentioned alcoholism. I certainly didn't. And he said to me, will you accept help? And that word help, I didn't know what it meant, but it sounded good to me. And I know sometimes some of us have been there with these fleeting moments of clarity in the midst of the madness as I call it and and help and I said here is this man caring about me and I couldn't stand myself but here he is caring for me and he said will you accept help and I said I will and he said good here's your airline ticket we alcoholics have amazing powers of recuperation we do especially when we're threatened or feel threatened. And I thought this was moving a little bit too fast. I mean, I told him I would accept help, but he said, here's your airline ticket, and I had no knowledge of what that meant, and of course, you know, my problem is, you know, that I'm selfish and self-centered, and I have to be in control at all times, and nobody can take that from me, or I feel out of control, and I don't like it. So here's this man saying to me, I'm going somewhere that I hadn't decided on. (laughs) They're going to send me up to a place in Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, I started arguing with them. You know, us alcoholics are just a little bit belligerent. (coughs) Almost reminds me still at Area Assembly these days, I describe us as a bunch of benign anarchists. (laughs) But it's that way I think it's part of our illness that we're just argumentative. Or maybe, you know, we're just legends in our own mind are in love with the sound of our own voice, or combinations of all three, I don't know. But um, I started arguing with him and, and, and told him that uh, I, it was a Thursday, as I vaguely recollect, and then I checked it afterwards a while. And I told him I had this couple to marry on Saturday, and I told him after I married that couple, then I'll go off to this place you're talking about. And he said, I think they'll love you more if you go now. You know, and I think we compromised, and settled on the following day, with was an open ticket, and that evening I went back home and I had some alcohol in my drawer, and I thought that couldn't go to waste, and then I called some of my friends, and I, I told them I was going off for a few days, and they said, well, come on up, we'll have a drink, you know, and went up the bayou, as we'd say, up the bayou, and I visited with them later on that night, and I vaguely remember in and out of the blackout, because that's how I was, I would just float in and out and have these little still frames you know, to remember, and then gone again, and I do remember, though, we were drinking glasses, and they were toasting my success in treatment, you know, I heard Tom last night, and thank you again, Tom, for that, you know, talking about the delusion, the delusion, how deluded I was, you yeah, I couldn't separate the truth from the false, that it hit me, you know, I would lie because that was my familiar friend. I didn't trust anybody, I sure wasn't going to tell you anything about me. But they were toasting my success and treatment and vaguely I remember getting to the airport later on that day and I flew to Chicago and had four doubles and between Chicago and Rochester didn't order any just to prove I didn't need it and you know what's with the dance, you know, I'm not that bad and I can control this. And I didn't realize it at the time, my friends, though I was 260 pounds and dying on my feet. I didn't know that. I did not. And I got to that place, and it was cold. I remember. First 10 days, I don't remember too much of anything, but I had this man assigned to me. His name was John from Los Angeles, and he's still sober by God's grace. He was assigned to me like a big brother and he told me afterwards I was one of the most obnoxious, arrogant sons of guns that it had ever been his privilege to meet, and I thanked him. You know, I was like felt right at home with that. You know, someone could finally acknowledge me. And he told me I argued with him about length of stay there, that seemed to be important to me, and he told me I'd be there for quite a while and I told him I'd only be there a few days and he said, oh no, you know, there's a long program, and he told me, I told him that he was much older than I was, so he needed a lot more help than I did. And that was my attitude there, and I stayed there three months. I was the youngest person there, the person nearest in age to me was 26 years older than I was, of course I was very different. I remember going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous downtown Rochester, being shipped in the van, from that place, to the meeting. felt we were being shipped like cattle. There were eight others in the van, I would not speak to them. They were very troubled.
1: <laughs>
0: <coughs> that down house uh, place where they met in Rochester was, in fact, was a gift to me. I was up in, uh, at the Hiawatha land last year, and. Often I had the opportunity to touch base with some good people who, for somehow some strange reason, remember this very sick alcoholic back from those days, and I needed to hear what they had to say to me. Sometimes I jump around in my journey, but I just, I suppose, we speak the way God moves us to speak, but I do know that I'm one drink away, my friend. I can stand and look in a mirror and pause and start thinking and start swooning, all in five seconds. Mm-hmm. I am an alcoholic, it's not that I was more of an alcoholic when I used to drink. This is a progressive illness and Tom and others so well said it last night and I keep saying in my own home group that we have a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition and that we have absolutely no mental defense against taking that first drink. Our help must come. I love the words, must come from a higher power. Must. Those meetings, I wouldn't let you touch me, I wouldn't let you near me, I wouldn't hug you, I wouldn't shake your hand. And I know today was fear. And self-loathing. I could sense the love that you had for each other but I was afraid of that. I was afraid of it. Oh, I tell you, that loneliness of the alcohol. Mm-hmm. But within 10 days I was getting well there, I want you to understand, you know, again these amazing powers of recuperation, there was this old gentleman there at the meeting and I always found someone to focus on at a meeting, because it was like I could pour out my venom inside on them, not verbally, but I could just focus, eyeball them, you know, almost like I eyeballed someone yesterday when they suggested that Ireland was still part of the British Isles, you know, that kind of eyeball. You know, we'll mention who.
1: You
0: know, but the colonial era has passed.
1: Anyway, this
0: guy chairing the meeting, old, wrinkled,
1: baggy-eyed,
0: and when he talked, he'd go, and he was definitely one of those. And he introduced himself as the chairperson of the meeting, and he said his name was Art, and within 10 seconds, I canonized him as Art the Fart. And that was my attitude at meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous and I only tell you that to tell you how teachable I was.
1: <laughs>
0: you know? I look back on it, he was sober and I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now for three months of being there I found out that you have to do a fourth and a fifth step of one, two, three, four and five in order to be released from the loving embrace of that establishment where I was. And so I took the first step, and took the second step, and took the third step. But The only problem was it was kind of just real lip service. First step for me was I was willing to acknowledge I drank too much, and when I drank too much I got into trouble. But I was powerless, thank you. My life had not become unmanageable because... So I would listen to you people at meetings, and I'd hear your war stories, and how you've been to jail, you know. I'm listening to Tom last night there, but for the grace of God myself many times. Because I was a blackout drinker and I drove. It was only God's grace, Tom, for me. We're no different. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. But you talk about being in jail and losing homes and families and jobs and children. And none of that stuff had happened to me. And of course I continued to believe I was different and I'd go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous just to continue to have you reinforce that I was different.
1: It's
0: a deadly disease, this. Deadly. It's a disease of perception, of attitude, of behavior, of thinking. It's not about booze anymore for me. It's but a symptom of the problem, as it says in the text. Alcohol is but a symptom of the problem. Selfishness, self-centeredness. Self-will run riot. Goodness. And that was me. Of course, I couldn't see that at the time. When I left there in January of 1980 and returned to La Rose, Louisiana, those people continued to love me. Continued to love me. I went to meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous because it became part of the job description. I didn't go because I wanted to go, but I went to meetings. First year and a half I didn't choose a sponsor because after all he was one of those, you know. And I got tired of you asking me did I have a sponsor, so I relented and asked this person, uh, Leonard Kay was his name, to be my sponsor. And I looked down my nose at him because after all I'd been in treatment, you know, and he shook himself in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we were different, you see, and I felt comfortable with that difference. For so whatever you would say to me, I could analyze and dismiss, you see, because it was on the basis of his ignorance. Oh, ho, oh, oh. ho! Scary. <coughs> and I stayed like that for the next four years, and I go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when you read how it worked, I believe that God had called me to tell you for the rest of the meeting how it really worked. And my sponsor, since, who's a member of that original group that I was joined, quote-unquote, when I came back to South Louisiana in 1980, Joe R., or Cajun Joe, from Golden Meadow, he's my sponsor to this day, Joe would tell me that he said, Maliki, many of us grew in love and tolerance in those days. Because he said, I believe that God gives at least one like you to each group
1: so that we can grow.
0: That doesn't at all sound familiar. Okay. And after four years of going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I stopped going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because I believed, I wanted to believe at the time that I'd carried the message long enough to you and now it was up to you to do something with it. The reality was that I continued to loathe myself and there was no freedom and there was no happiness and there was no nothing and I wasn't following or working the principles. It was a game, and I got tired of the game, and I stopped going and became worse. Didn't drink. Late summer of 1984, I was over in Ireland visiting with my sister in uh, in Dublin. And uh, for those of you who believe there's such a thing as non-alcoholic beer, can I disagree with you? See, less than one percent means more than zero percent. I have a disease of thinking. She had a six-pack of O'Douls in her refrigerator. And I visited with the O'Douls. And all they did was make me go to the bathroom. I know I was looking for the effect. It didn't do anything for me except, you know, activate the plumbing. And that's about all it did. A couple of weeks later, sitting on the plane in London, getting ready to come back and to Atlanta and then on down to New Orleans. And... The stewardess came up to me and said, will you have something to drink? And I said, I'll have the double beef eater and tonic without batting an eyelid. And I had a few of those and thought went off in my mind. You people put me through hell. It was always you people. You told me that if I took the first drink I would get drunk. And here I am after three or four doubles and I'm feeling perfectly in control. And then I must have had another few and another light went off in my brain which was, you're not an alcoholic at all. And I came back to where I was living and pastoring at the time and um, a few weeks later I I just, I didn't pick up the drinking again. It was all part of me at the time. But I found myself out in the Broadwater Beach Motel in Biloxi, Mississippi and uh, soft lights and pretty waitresses and linen tablecloths and candles and what do you have to drink? I'm feeling perfectly in control. Ordered myself a double. Had a few doubles. Another you know, life went off in my brain instead of paying hotel prices for mixed drinks, much cheaper buy a fifth than mix your own. And then the real horror began. So my friend alcohol turned on me. It didn't work for me anymore. I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't stay sober and I've heard that said. I could take one drink and go into a blackout, I could drink a fifth and sit here eyeballing you. It became totally unpredictable. Before I used to, years ago, be able to predict that I could just go into a state of oblivion. I could predict that or stay in a state of oblivion. Now it stopped working and that was absolutely horrible. The few remaining friends I had started drifting away except one whom I mention by name, he's not one of us, but he's probably an incredible gift in my life. His name is Patrick O'Brien from the old country. He hung in there with me. To the extent that for a few years prior to that, he, he would read daily the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he would go to meetings of Al-Anon so, just so he could cope with his own feelings. That was a gift to him and to me. He wanted to understand quote unquote this is it. so that he could be there for me and with me and for himself. He came to me early November of nineteen eighty five and he said, Maniki, you're killing yourself. Of course, in that year where I'd stopped and started and stopped and started, that year of late summer eighty four to November of eighty five, and um, after five stuff, and stopping for two days, and going on binges, and disappearing, and oh yes, and going back to that place in Rochester frequently, and my boss sending me to a psychiatrist for ten months, once a week, and he was a wonderful gift in my life, and I'm glad they acknowledged that in our text, that we're supposed to make use of what those good people have to offer. He would ask me, are you going to your meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous, are you drinking? Of course, I'd lie with a straight face because as soon as I'd finished the session with and then you know, I'd bs and just continue to persuade myself. I was in awe of myself and how wonderful I was. I'd go off to the Bull's Corner in New Orleans and have a liquid lunch, you know, to celebrate surviving the psychiatrist one more time. You know, sick. He was a wonderful human being. And all of that stuff and people trying to love me and help me and then gradually pulling away and realizing, you know, he's got to do whatever he's got to do. And then early November came around and Pat came to visit with me and he said, Malik, you're killing yourself, you've got to do something. And I knew it. I think I had a death wish at the time. Everybody had pulled away. My sister, that summer of 1985 when I went back over to visit, First day I was in her home, she comes in with her husband, she looks at me and she says, Malachi, you're not welcome in our home anymore. We're going out for a while and when we come back we want you to be gone. She was the last one that was propping me up. And of course I gave her the half peace sign. No, it's a peace sign. I gave her the half peace sign. Who needed her anyway? Mm. oh this is not a nice illness Mm -hmm. we roar like a tornado through the lives of others and then that November of 85 with some prompting from Pat I called my boss and I told him I'm leaving I don't know where I'm going I don't even know if I want to live and I remember him saying to me oh Bishop Boudreau do what you need to do he was tired too he said before you go he said Why don't you call this man that you mentioned to me? (coughs) This man's name is Hilary D. Father Hillary, as he's known to some. I'd met him at a gathering something like this back in 1983 when I was still dry. See, I'd come to large gatherings of alcoholics and because I could lose myself in them. You know, didn't have to be involved with anybody, just kind of float in, float out, you know, show up kind of thing. He was the speaker, and whatever he said touched me. I don't know to this day what he said, but whatever he said must have just cracked at my loneliness and emptiness. And I went up to him after the meeting like many did, and I found words coming out of my mouth that I had no intention of saying to him, and I said to him very simply, Hillary, one of these days I'd like to come visit with you in Coleman, Alabama. He reached in his wallet. He took out his card. He put it in my hand, and he said, "When you are ready, come. That was all. When you are ready, come." And he went on to the next person. I must have told my boss about Hillary because is sometimes known as the drunk monk, and I was fascinated with a Benedictine abbot being in recovery, and he said he's a big man in his church and and those of you who know Hillary know that you know if you put him sideways, you would not mark him absent. you know he is uh, somewhat substantial in presence. And um, I know, it's just, I, I can't say it's strange anymore. All I can tell you, my friends, is that God works. You know, there are no co- coincidences. They're just moments when God chooses to be anonymous. And I mentioned, you know, meeting Hillary to my boss, obviously, and he said, well, before you leave, why don't you call that man that you mentioned to me in Coleman, Alabama? And I retrieved his phone number. And thank God, when I called him, he answered the phone. And you have to remember, I met the man briefly once, two years before, a very passing moment. And I had not seen him since. And when he answered the phone, I said to him, Hillary, this is Manneke. And there was a pause. And across the silence of two years, all I heard him say to me was, are you ready? I said, of course I'm ready. He said, good, come. And he hung up.
1: That was it. And those
0: of you who have ever met Hillary or know Hillary, you know, he seldom invites. Most things come in the form of a directive or a command. You know, (laughs) incredible presence. (coughs) I didn't even know where Coleman, Alabama was. I look on the map. I knew I had to get somewhere. I couldn't be where I was. I was pastoring two communities, and I was a tribunal judge and a chancery official and a whole bunch of titles and dying of this illness. And they had a farewell for me in those two communities, I think for varying motives. And I slunk off, my plan was to drive to Cunman, Alabama, which is 454 miles due northeast of New Orleans and I had to kind of find my way to New Orleans from where I was living and on the way, what happened, my friends, was I took a drink and I went into a blackout. And I parked my car at the airport in New Orleans and I flew to New York and in the blackout. flew to Ireland in the blackout and stayed with my mother five days in the blackout. I crossed the English Channel and stayed overnight in Paris. And a week later, I came out of that blackout in a hotel room in Venice, Italy, which is a slight detour from Coleman, Alabama. <laughs> and all I remember that hotel room with the four hideous terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, but the terror the not knowing, the not knowing how did I get there, and still that death wish, and loathing myself, and nobody wanted me, and I didn't want me, and it felt like everybody had pulled away from me, and of course I pulled away from everybody is what I'd done, had nothing to do with them really and vaguely remember coming back across Europe, vaguely and vaguely crossing this channel and vaguely wanting to fall into the channel and end it and saying those four words, God please help me and continuing to drink and vaguely falling in the door vaguely remembering falling in the door of friends of mine in Long Island, New York, Thanksgiving Day nineteen eighty five. They told me after staying three days there and they thought I was going to die and eventually I left them, just kind of the way we leave, you know. Getting to New Orleans and then remembering Strange that day, December 3rd, 1985, heading northeast from New Orleans and I arrived in Coleman, Alabama the evening of December 3rd, 1985 and it's been a day at a time since. Hillary took me in and talked to me the following morning. All he said simply was, I'll put a roof over your head, I'll put food on the table, and you will go to meetings. And it wasn't like asking me. And I had nowhere else to go. I would nowhere else to go. I would burned all my bridges. Nobody wanted me. I didn't even want me. I'd even, quote, unquote, come back to you, the very people I detested and loathed. And I was absolutely convinced that even what you had to offer couldn't work. I had nowhere to go. And here we said, I'm going to assign another monk to work with you. And his name was Malachi. Maliki Shanahan, since gone home to God. Maliki was 14 years sober at the time and also at Parkinson's. And oftentimes I became his meeting when he couldn't get out the way he wanted to and, and go to meetings. And I frequently go, I do not exaggerate, to three meetings a day because I had nowhere else to go. And part of the condition of living there was you would go to meetings. So I go to meetings in Coleman. The downtown Coleman group became my home group. Going up those stairs and the naked little bulb in the ceiling and the sofas with the springs coming up out of them. And, you know, just wonderful people who loved me and I was scared to death. And they just kind of just brought me in the door and they loved me when I didn't even want to love myself people that just are gifts in my life today downtown Coleman Group became my home group and I go to meetings in Ugg and Arab and Aniant and Decatur and Huntsville and was thrown into area assembly in Montgomery and I mean everywhere there was a meeting I mean it was like we went to a meeting you know and that was it and no one questioned and, those people continued to love me, and what Maliki Shanahan did was it was his role to walk me through the steps in order, beginning with the first one. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and after three months of intensive exposure to Altonics Anonymous, I began to feel my oats again. I hear you keep coming back, and I began to get a little bit resentful because. I thought I didn't have to keep coming back as often as I had been coming back, you see. And I'd come back to Malachi Shannon and I'd start complaining to him and I'd say, they keep saying it's going to get better. When is it going to get better? And he'd say, I've got two questions for you, Malachi. The first question is, did you take a drink today? And I'd say, no. And then he'd say, did you get in trouble today? And I'd say, no. Well, then he said, for an alcoholic, you are having a great day. And he would keep it that simple for me to get me over these humps where I was having what I would call intellectual orgasms. You know, i just being very, very absorbed in my own thinking. You know. And I lived there for six months and I came back to um, South Louisiana very scared because I thought there was going to be no AA like North Alabama AA. It was like it took hold of me. The gift that I received in North Alabama, my friends, was that I came to develop a relationship with the God of my understanding. See, I was raised for one particular kind of God, and, and that was a gift in my life for the time it was a gift in my life. But I do know that while I continued pastoring, there was a conflict within me between the God of my understanding I was developing in Alcoholics Anonymous and the God of my understanding that I, I mean, the God I was asked to represent in the system. And it became a tremendous conflict for me. And this is not about anybody else's journey, because I've learned to have a profound respect for each person's religious views. They are our own affairs, it says in the text. And there are many, many ways, I believe, to walk with my God. And each person, the important thing is that we walk with our God. How we choose to do it is a matter of how we choose to do it. And whatever to me today supports me in walking with my God and developing a relationship with my God, that's all that matters. So I came back to South Louisiana with that turmoil beginning in me, very restless, you know, how am I going to find answers? And it was the tail end of May 1986, and I got a call from Enola. Her husband was Leonard K, my first window dressing sponsor the one I'd asked to be my sponsor to keep you off my bank. And she told me he was dying of cancer and whether I come visit with him. And another one of grace, God's great moments for me. I haven't been in touch with Leonard Kay for a number of years. After all, I mean, who needed him? In fact, she taught me something about being so nonjudgmental judgmental about others in this program and how we choose to find and live sobriety. It was very close to, quote-unquote, my fifth dry birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous when I started drinking the O'Douls and then started playing with the doubles. And of course I'd stopped going to meetings for a year. And my window dressing sponsor called me and told me, we missed you at your birthday supper. We have your five-year chip for you. Did I tell him that I'd relapsed? I guess not. I was too ashamed. Well, he said, he said, why don't you come visit Morgan City? That's where he lived at the time. and Come to the store and I'll give you your chip. I went to that store. Walked in and it's a long room like this. He sat in the back on this high desk and he said that's where he sat because he said he could get a clear shot of the front door in case a robber came in. He'd just tell everyone to duck and he'd go boom, you know. (laughs) I walked into the back to visit with him. I knew that he knew. He knew that I knew that he knew. put that five year medallion in my hand and he said, Mariki, yeah, I love you, keep coming back he didn't say we've missed your meetings for a year I've had reports you're drinking again unconditional love unconditional love hmm. So when Enola called me to come visit with him, I ran, I went to visit with him. It was the last day in May 1986, I sat with him. He was lying on a sofa in the living room and he said, Maliki, I'm soon going home to God. I want you to get a sponsor of this one work with him. I promised him. The following day, June 1st, he died. I buried him June 3rd. Came back to home in Louisiana feeling very empty went to a 5.30 meeting that evening because I knew I had to be with you and you understand that I knew I needed to get a sponsor because I promised Leonard I would get a sponsor people at the meeting the chairperson said anyone with a problem I said I think I might have one I need a sponsor I thought they were all going to jump up and volunteer no one did
1: <laughs>
0: I was just not too
1: helpful here
0: after the meeting, gave me some phone numbers. I knew some of them vaguely. And, of course, it was like, take the action if you want what we have. That was their way of doing things. That evening on the way home from that meeting, Joe, R's memory crossed my mind again. That he used to tell me many of us grew in love and tolerance in those days. And I called Joe that night. haven't talked to him in maybe three years. And all he said to me was, welcome home, Alec. I've been waiting for your call. Asked him if he'd be my sponsor, he said, Joe. Sure. And for the next years Joe really walked closely with me and that home group, the South Lafouche group, walked closely with me. And then I became active in the Bayou Black group in Homer. Stayed in close contact with Joe and but the conflict within kept getting larger and larger. And I talked to Joe about it and he'd say very simply, Trust God, clean house. Help others. The answers will come. <laughs> put one foot in front of the other. Oh, I used to go berserk in those days. I'd say, Joe, what does God want me to do? He'd say, I believe God wants you to walk the sidewalk sober today. I'd well, so how am I supposed to walk the sidewalk sober? He said, it's very simple. He said, you put one foot in front of the other. And that's all he would say. I used to go berserk. In fact, like I wanted him to tell me But he wouldn't. He told me what I needed to do. Trust God, walk the sidewalk sober today. Put one foot in front of the other. Very simple. But time came, I suppose, where I had to do something because the conflict was tearing me up. It and others, I'll share a couple with them. Because sobriety to me is tremendously important and I have to be able to embrace my feelings today and, and where I am and thank God for your support. Back in 1988, I wrote an article, Everyone is Welcome at the Table. Of course, as a Catholic pastor, I was supposed to represent the people who were divorced and remarried, could not come to communion. And For years, I couldn't understand that kind of a God. You know, my God doesn't say to Mary, you're welcome, and to Christina, you're not. My God loves me. He doesn't say, I will love you if... He doesn't say, I will forgive you if... He says, I forgive you... My God loves me bumps, wumps, larks and warts, and all. Does. And I've also come to believe that I do not need anybody's permission to walk with my God. I do not need anybody's permission to walk with my God. You've given me that freedom. But you know, when you pastor particular church communities and you preach publicly that everyone is welcome at the table, you know, within that gathering, you know, the local church would be very happy members of the church, but the powers that be, it seemed, became a little perturbed, because it seemed I wasn't following the party line, uh, and I couldn't, I just couldn't. And also at that time, and it's only because I was sober I was able to join Rain, which is the Regional AIDS Interfaith Network, and I became a caregiver. And worked with people who had AIDS and they taught me the dignity of life and the dignity of dying. One of them was a priest friend of mine and I knew he'd been in HIV for about seven years. And he'd gotten it through needle sticks and drinking and related behaviors, as many of us do. One day he called me and said, Maliki, I was just told by the doctor I've developed pneumocystis." I need to go tell my boss, would you come visit with me? And I won't mention where. What we did, we took off and we went to visit with his bishop and sat in his office. And My friend told his bishop that he'd developed AIDS. And the first words out of that man's mouth in fear was, well, you can't stay here, what do people think? Which was very standard in those days similar delusions with that as we have in our own rooms I remember my friend looking at his bishop very kindly saying I wonder what Jesus would have said to the lepers and the prostitutes." and he left his office and I buried my friend two years later there were many events like that that maybe when I talked to my sponsor about them he said man you have to quit fighting you know because you're developing some horrendous resentments and They'll kill you. And so I made the decision to move on. That's what I had to do. Left something I loved. In the meantime, though, my sponsor told me to go back to school. He must have seen the writing on the wall. You know, sponsors are they've interesting insights before they even happened to us for some strange reason. And he suggested I go back to school and I went back to Tulane University in New Orleans. and obtain my Master's in Social Work. and uh, In in the interim too, I was at a conference similar to this and uh, sharing something about my journey, this spiritual quest, as I would call it. And there was a lady there by the name of Lane from Tupelo, Mississippi. And I was at the Mid-South Young People's Conference in Alcoholics and Adams in Shreveport, Louisiana. I think it was seven years ago now, yeah. And I spoke Sunday morning and she came to me afterwards and shared some of her spiritual turmoil. She'd been raised in the Southern Baptist tradition and it seemed that some of it was not meeting her needs where she was. She was an active serving member in Al-Anon. In fact, as we speak today, um, and I know we don't have anniversaries in Al-Anon, but she went to her first meeting of Al-Anon March 6, 1982. And she's been active ever since. (coughs) We talked and then we'd meet at different conferences and we'd write and and it was a strange kind of friendship for me. You know, because most ladies in my life up to that time it seemed, you know, I wanted to get very close to them. (laughs) Tom, the imaginations are going wild here this morning. Basically, I had no idea what it was to have a relationship, I knew what it was to be in heat, you know, if you want to know what the answer is. So, um, with no idea how to connect to another human being, it had to be about being in control, which is what all that was about. And I'd often say to my sponsor, you know, in the latter years, I'd love to have a partner and he'd say, well, man, you've been having a series of these Roman candle relationships. Do you know what a Roman candle relationship is? You know what a Roman candle is. He defined a Roman candle relationship as kind of a four day deal, although like it could be longer, but there's kind of like four pieces in it. First day you meet, second day you fall in sick, third day you fall in heat, fourth day followed by terror, bewilderment, frustration and despair. And asking, how did that happen? And oh my God, the same again. And he'd say, well, if you keep doing what you've always done, you know you keep getting what you've always got. If nothing changes, nothing changes. If you keep looking in the same places, you're going to find the same kind of people. So he says, maybe what my suggestion to you is, why don't you get out of the way and give God an opportunity to direct the traffic? And I did, very reluctantly. And it seemed over a couple of years that Lane's friendship and mine just kind of grew in its own way. It was kind of like a safe place for me, and we could just talk about what was important to us. And after I made the decision to move on, um, I pretty well finished graduate school again at this stage. I remember uh, she sending me a troll in the mail, orange hair, dressed in the priest and cross and collar, and saying, this is weird. You know, looking at this thing, and here am I moving on from it, and there's a horrible reminder out of my past, you know. So I, I, I called her and wrote to her and asked her if it would be okay for me to come visit her in Tupelo, Mississippi. Because that me me was on the way to Coleman, Alabama. slight way around, but you go north, like to Jackson, you know, Mississippi, and got the trace to Tupelo, and then come across to, to Cullman. So I did visit it with her and then visited the Abbey and Cormann went to visit the grave with my friend Malachy Shanna, who since gone home to God and sat with Maliki for an hour and I talked to him and I think you can understand that, how we do. People may not be physically present to us, but the spiritual bond is always there, the part of my life. And I remember leaving that cemetery feeling it was okay. And later on that year, it was May, I was privileged to be at the Mountaintop Roundup in Lake Gunnersville, North Alabama, and Hillary was the voice, and Lane went with me, and my sponsor had already interviewed me and her, and her sponsor Kay had interviewed her and me, and it seemed like everybody had interviewed us. But Hillary's blessing was important to me. And all that weekend in Lake Gunnersville, he said nothing. He spent a lot of time with Lane. Sunday morning spoke, and after the meeting, he comes up to me, puts his arm around my shoulder. He said, I'm very happy for you and lane. We married in August of 1993, up in New York, and the ceremony and reception was arranged by the very friends whose door had fallen in drunk Thanksgiving Day, 1985. There's an irony in this, Uh, the preacher who married us was Episcopal and he was drunk. I felt right at home.
1: Felt right at home.
0: You know, it was interesting. Blaine says, I think he's drunk. I said, it don't matter honey, all we need is his signature, shut up. came back, and uh, I was continuing to live in New Orleans. Lane lived in Tupelo. She's two sons from a prior marriage, and I I told some of you about that weekend. Uh, Sean, who's 21 in London, who's 17. I inherited those as part of the package deal, and and I decided that we were not going to have children. (coughs) At this stage, Lane and I had moved to Lafayette, Louisiana. She made a conscious decision the boys needed to stay behind to get to know their absent father with whom they haven't had a relationship for a long time. They needed to get to know him. And so we had an opportunity to get to know each other, moved to Lafayette. I didn't want to have children. I was adamantly opposed. I think it was because I was scared. Because my friends told me, Maliki, if you ever have a child, you know, you learn what it is to be unselfish in a hurry. You know, the thought for this alcoholic of being unselfish was just a little too threatening. You know, the truth for Norman I was working away and decided no we're not going to have kids and Lane was not happy in Lafayette it was a real testing time for her she was away from her kids, she was away from her roots she was away from everything and she was with people who talked funny not only me but she was with Cajuns and I decided we were not going to have children and within a few months she said she came around accepting that and then God took it out of her hand September 23rd, 1994, our daughter Bridget was born. Her middle name is Ashling, which is the Gaelic for Beautiful Dream. At that stage, I suppose, too, there was a lot of pain in our lives, because when I made the decision to move on from the ministry, uh, it created a lot of turmoil in our Irish family. It really tested my glib assertion that I respected everybody's beliefs because now I was forced to accept my mother's beliefs. And my mother's belief was that I'd left the church, I'd married a Protestant, and she was divorced. Three strikes, you're out. And for the next three years, there was silence. She could not acknowledge my wife. She could not acknowledge our child, her first grandchild. She couldn't do it. Oh, at times I wanted to get even. Because I knew the family skeletons, some of them. And I'm an alcoholic. And that I... I'd say to my sponsor, Joe, what am I supposed to do? He said, you will write to your mother. You will keep it in today. You will write to her. You will tell her what's going on with you. You will call her. It doesn't matter if she do not want to talk to you or to your wife. You will call her. And that went on for pretty well three years. My mother was in a deep depression, is what it was. Her belief was I turned my back on God. I turned my back on 800 years of history. i married the enemy for God's sake. <laughs> now think about it. Yeah. And left the church, and you see, my older brother's a Roman Catholic priest, and the army there is, you see, my mother must have believed that we were paying premiums on her heavenly insurance policy.
1: <laughs> you know, and I
0: changed the equation, and, you know. God used to stand on her right hand and consult with her, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm serious. I know her mom. And I just upset that apple carton. She had a tough time with it. And, and divorce was a big no-no in Ireland. anyway. You know, it's a whole tradition that has basically flew in the face of. But March 23rd, 1996. Yeah. A triple bypass surgery. The day after, I don't remember this, I was in hospital. Lane tells me that the phone rang, and when she picked it up, she heard this voice saying, Lane, this is Bridie McCool, is there anything I can do for you? My mother broke the silence for three years. And it's been thawing and thawing and thawing, and I do believe it's God's grace on all sides. And in the meantime, in case I didn't get the message you know, from God that he was in charge and in control and I didn't want to have children. In February of 1996, which was a month before I had the open heart surgery, I was at the Sunflower Roundup in Kansas and it was a very spiritual weekend and that sense of spirituality continued.
1: Uh,
0: when I got home and nine months later our son, Colum Lachlan, was born. So here I am with two little ones, and um, God firmly in control, and teaching me messages, and I having feelings I never thought I could ever have or were possible. Incredible, you know, and our daughter Bridget, she's you know, Ashling beautiful dreams. sometimes she's just a lovable tyrant. You know, she's three and a half, and she looks at me and she says, "You know, you go and timeout right now." It's me. I get a little confused with all of that. And she says, no. Pops the foot on the ground and walks down the hallway and her ponytail just flops.
1: And
0: the chin up. And I say to my wife, how in God's name did she ever get like
1: that?
0: And she looks at me and she says, you don't know. She's just like you. God says the same May 26th of this year, Lane and Bridget and Colum and I are going over to Ireland to visit with my mom. It's been almost seven years since I've seen her. She's ailing. She's in her 80th year. My sister tells me she's basically living for the moment and then she believes she'll slip home to God. I have you. You've been my family for so long. And it's only because God's grace working through you that I can be with you. And they're going to feel these feelings and allow people to love me. And go visit with my mom and make amends to her. Because for years I wanted to believe that she was wrong. And now I can go and ask her forgiveness. Amendments happen in different ways. You remember I mentioned way back, and I'll try to wrap this up because Dave said he was throwing me out at eleven. <coughs>
1: remember
0: I, I used that couple as an argument with my bishop not to go to treatment straight away. I was going to marry them on the Saturday, and you know then whatever. I often wonder what happened to them did, well I didn't show up I mean I was off on the plane to Rochester and I sometimes wondered you know in the process of you know making a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all, I mean they were on the list I know where they were That was 1979 1993 my sponsor Joe asked me to come back to my original home group he said we want to check you out you know what I mean asked me to come speak at their speaker night meeting. And this stage now, I wasn't 260 pounds anymore. I had a beard and I'm a little bit slimmer than that. And When I opened my mouth, I saw these two women and the meeting kind of move and look funny and paid no more mind to it. And after the meeting, both of them come up to me and one of them looks at me and says, Do you remember me? I hate that question. <laughs> I feel incredibly vulnerable when any lady under the age of 85 approaches <laughs> me and says, do you remember me? Because I was a blackout drinker. I said, do you remember me? And I'm, I'm vaguely trying to pull something out of the fog of the past and it wouldn't come to me. And She says, my name is Suzette and you're supposed to marry me and my husband 13 and a half years ago. And you never showed up, and I wanted you to know our day was ruined and went up in smoke, and I've hated you ever since. But I also want you to know that I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous two weeks ago, picked up a desire chip, and I want you to know that I
1: understand. Hmm.
0: cried and I made amends to her and then it dawned on me about her mother and father and I said to her Ooh, how's your mom and dad doing maybe I need to call your dad And she says Ooh, I don't think I'd do that if I were you he's still looking for you but she said um, we'll keep a chair for him here and one of these days maybe he'll come in the door like you and I and maybe one final little part, there's so much I could tell you about sobriety. God is just... It continues to unfold for me. You know, it's not like, you know, all of a sudden I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and you know, everything's wonderful. It's like, now my life is unfolding and, you know, all I know is that God is good. But my daughter's my teacher in many ways. You know, but. But in another way, a few months ago, I mean, she lived in Louisiana with us. Obviously, we came back to Tupelo last year, and that's a story in itself. I got a job in Tupelo at this particular area clinic, and 10 days before the closing on our home, I was fired, and here you talk about some interesting times. What that forced me to do is go out on my own, which I've done since and haven't looked back, You and opened up my own office. I'm very grateful to God for that. I saw it as an opportunity. My wife said, is God doing for you what you're not willing to do for yourself. He pushed you out the door. I love the work I was doing, but I don't know if I, I particularly needed to be where I was. Anyway, uh, and a lot of the work I do today are with children who have been sexually assaulted and with their families. and I work with adoptive parents and I work with couples because I love a good fight. And well, I love working with family systems, and I work with our local good old parole people town and youth court and legends, you know what I'm talking about. And the strange thing is that most of them who come visit with me for some strange reason have either been bending the elbow or squeezing the grape injudiciously. As I would say, I'm strange. Maybe that's why I'm in Tupelo. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Bridget, my daughter, is my teacher. A few months ago, we're sitting. I come home from work. Sometimes I'm exhausted, but I know my life continues. And There's no point in explaining to a three-and-a-half-year-old that daddy's tired. She don't understand that. she has been missing her daddy all day. Since her daddy's wrapped around both of her little fingers and a few toes as well, I mean, there is no argument. I'm lost. I'm done for. Yeah, I am. And sober, and I suppose I'm jumping here, but I think the greatest gift I give our two children today is that they have a sober daddy, and that's all because of you. Yeah. You know that is the greatest gift I give them. That I'm sober by God's grace. we you picture one even playing with play doh. Said, "Daddy, come play play doh with me." I said, "Okay." She says, "Make me an alligator." Let's make an alligator, the Louisiana days, and make me a turtle. That's a turtle. And she says, make me a swamp. Well, that was a challenge. The swamp was kind of large, so I did a kind of a flat thing with a few cypress knees sticking up out of it. And, and then all of a sudden she says, make me an ice cream cone. And I looked at her ice cream cone. Like, that's not nothing to do with a swamp or cypress knees or alligators or turtles or any of that stuff. But she looks at me with her blue eyes and she says, you can do it, Daddy, you can do it. And the thought that came to me much later that night before I fell asleep was that that's the relationship that my Heavenly Father asks me to have with Him today. Malachi, I can do it, I can do it, Malachi. And He does. And I want to thank you so much for loving me today.
1: I love you.